Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Louder CEO Chris Crawford. First of all, I got an email recently asking, how can I sell more physical product? And that includes CDs and cassettes and vinyl and merch. So the very first thing and probably the most important thing is it has to be visually compelling. So the best thing I could say is get a real graphic designer to put together some graphically attractive artwork that will draw people's eyes to it. That's the very first thing. Way, way back in the vinyl days, it was not uncommon for people to buy albums just because they liked the look of the album cover. It's much more difficult for that to happen these days with CDs, but of course, if you are printing vinyl, this is something that could be vitally important to the sales. The second thing is, it always helps to be offering something that's a limited edition. So one of the ways is to number your items. So for instance, if it was a piece of vinyl, it would be numbered one of 100, number 10 of 100, number 99 of 100, whatever it might be, if you can sequentially number it, you'll find that it'll be much, much easier to sell the item, not only at the price you want, but maybe even at a premium. The next thing is to add bonus tracks. Now the bonus tracks would be exclusive tracks just for that product. It would be tracks that couldn't be had online. You couldn't go to Spotify and get them. You couldn't go to your website and get them. They'd be exclusive just for that product. And if you have really hardcore fans, they'll eat that up. Number four is provide a bundle. So the bundle might be something like if you buy a CD or if you buy the vinyl, you'll also get a t-shirt with it or you'll get a mug or you get a combination of a mug and a patch and a sticker and whatever the case, whatever kind of merch you have. But bundles work. So it's one thing to always think about. How can you take all of your products and bundle them into just one? And the last thing is special liner notes. Now, like I just said, many times albums used to be sold on the basis of the graphics of the cover, but also on the liner notes. So people would look at the liner notes and would find them particularly attractive or so intense that they couldn't read everything while they're standing at the store, so they'd buy it to read later. So this is another thing to think about where there's a lot of information and a lot of information that you can't get anywhere else. So those five things will help you sell a lot more physical product, have something that's visually compelling, make it a limited edition, include bonus tracks, bundle some items together, and finally some special liner notes. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. If you want to learn more about the basics of mixing, sign up for my Music Mixing Primer course. Go to mixingprimer.com to learn more. Also check out my new Hitmakers Club for access to all my courses, monthly workshops and Q&A webinars, a powerful online group, and much, much more. Go to hitmakersclub.com to find out all about it. Now, recently, I've also gotten a lot of emails and a lot of comments on the website, a lot of questions in general about remastering for streaming. Everyone is pretty aware that Spotify now normalizes to minus 14 lufts. Apple Music is at minus 16. YouTube is at minus 13. And because of that information being out there, everyone thinks that they have to master to those levels. That's not the case, however. What that really means is all those services are going to normalize the level to their own particular in-house levels. So whatever level your submitted master is, 
it's going to get reprocessed anyway. It doesn't even matter if it's the right level that they're looking for. They're still going to reprocess it. Why? Well, all services these days, and this includes Spotify, Apple Music, TuneCore, CD Baby, which are aggregators, they all ask for at least 44.1.16 masters. So in other words, they want CD quality masters. In the case of Apple Music, they want high resolution masters. They want 96.24, if possible. So what happens is you submit your 44.1.16 master to TuneCore, let's say, and then TuneCore submits it to Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora, and YouTube, and then they do the processing. So it doesn't matter what processing you do, it's going to get reprocessed anyway. What you're really looking for here is dynamic range. Dynamic range is much more important than the actual LUFS level. What you're looking for is a dynamic range that goes anywhere between 8 and 12. So in other words, 8 dB of dynamic range on the low end and 12 dB in the high end. You'll find anything less than 8 dB, like the common 6 when it's really squashed to death, will not sound as good once it's processed for the streaming network. So you're much better off to have more dynamic range, even though we're not used to submitting like that, than to have less. So that's much more important than anything else you could do on the master, than the level of the master. Give it some headroom. It's always a good idea. You don't have to run it all the way up to minus 0.1 dB, although you'll want that for a CD, but you won't want it for anything else. Even so, the most important thing here is not the Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube levels. It's the dynamic range that's the most important factor here. The reason why those specs are out there by Spotify and Apple Music and Pandora and YouTube, the reason why they're out there is so you could listen at those levels to see what it's going to be like after it's processed. So there's a lot of plugins these days that will actually do that automatically for you so you can hear what happens, but it's only for that reason alone, to hear what happens after they process it. It's actually not the processing yourself that you're going to do. So I hope that clears things up. Just make sure that you supply a 4416 master, CD quality master to your aggregator. And if you're signed to a record label, then you're giving them a high res master. And everybody will be happy, especially you, when you hear your music on one of the streaming services. My guest today is CEO of Louder, Chris Crawford. Louder is an online source for artists to easily and cheaply obtain licenses for cover songs. The company also operates on the other side of the business, too, using its technology to efficiently match metadata between publishers and streaming services, then collecting and distributing the royalties. I spoke with Chris via phone from his office in San Francisco. Let's go back to the beginning here. Perhaps it's best to tell our audience what Louder is. Why don't you describe Louder, please? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Louder came from an idea back in 2009 to get acapella music onto the iTunes store. Um, at the time, I was a collegiate acapella director and arranger, uh, and I was also interning um, in the iTunes promotions team um, here in California. And at the time, it seemed like iTunes had everything. I mean, we had hundreds of yoga mixes and meditation albums, but there were only six acapella albums. And when I dug into why, it was a rights issue. Um, acapella music is primarily made up of cover songs. So you have a lot of uh, organizations or people that control the rights to their recording, but they don't control the rights to the songs that they're covering. And there wasn't a streamlined way to 
maintain those mechanical licenses, distribute the content to the store, and then every time sales were made, or in that case, per, uh, predominantly downloads, um, paying the correct songwriters and publishers. And this issue was compounded with your typical acapella group doing basically an album of 10 to 12 songs of all sorts of different styles. Um, so it's not like you'd have a Beatles cover song album. You'd have um, some of the latest uh, hip hop hits, uh, some country songs and some pop songs. And so it really spoke to a desire to centralize it and make it easier for independent artists to obtain these licenses and basically release the content that they were already recording. And so we originally uh, focused on acapella music. We called the company Acapella Records to make it sound like the most official thing going in acapella at the time. We launched it the same day that Glee came out here in the U.S., um, which was a complete coincidence, <laughs> um, not part of the master plan at all. I'd like to think it was, but it wasn't. And, um, and we built a business that way, started working with a couple hundred um, acapella groups across the world for all their, their distribution and their licensing in the U.S. And then um, we, we basically learned that uh, nobody knows how to spell the word acapella, even a lot of the fans of acapella don't know how spell the word acapella that's two p's two l's two words um which made emailing us very challenging yeah <laughs> made, uh, going to the website very challenging and so we decided to uh to simplify our branding and also open it up to uh, independent musicians uh, across all sorts of styles and genres and that's when we changed the company brand to louder um and we did it without the E. I'm not sure exactly where the E uh, or when it fell away, but or maybe it's just part of the influence of being surrounded by companies like Flickr and Tumblr here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, but we we changed the, changed the name to Louder, opened it up, and started uh, supporting thousands and thousands of independent musicians. And um, at the time, we were since we were also a distribution company, we were working closely with the big stores um, and specifically the big streaming platforms. And we were getting to understand some of their problems, and it's problems that have recently surfaced a lot in the news, but this has been a problem for a long time. And that's that there's all this content on the platforms um, where the pathway to license it is either unclear or way too um, expensive. And um, what I mean by way too expensive is that ultimately, if, uh, if you could take everything that's not registered in the copyright office and file electronic NOIs um, to the copyright office before you release everything, uh, but that really adds up. And you look at your um, your typical streaming platform has. Uh, now over 44, 45 million sound recordings, and that number is growing by 750,000 new sound recordings every month. It'll probably be up to about a million new sound recordings a month by the end of the year. Wow. Um, and the streaming platforms are already operating on razor-thin margins. So this idea of just basically paying all this money into a process that isn't actually 
going to guarantee that the royalties are going to end up in the songwriter's hands um, seems like a you know complete waste of time and money. And um, but but it's also you're battling against how copyright law is actually written. Um, and so it was at that time that we were talking to the streaming platforms, and they said, "Yeah, so we have this we have this big problem, and we really want you to." to take your technology and focus it towards solving this uh, at scale for us. And at the time, we, I mean, we loved working with independent artists and it was, we were having a lot of fun. I mean, we're all independent uh, musicians ourselves uh, here in the office in San Francisco. Um, and uh, we thought, well, do we really, really want to do this? Um, and our conclusion was that we wanted, we wanted our technology that, connect sound recordings and compositions and pays the right people to have the largest impact on the industry it could. And the best way to do that was to find ways to plug it in to those areas that were generating the most activity around music. And so um, we start to look at, well, what, what would this look like if this problem was solved across the top 10 streaming platforms. Um, you know, how much more money would be paid out to independent songwriters? How much, um, how much more incentive would there be for people to invest in a career of making music? Because there is less doubt that the underlying plumbing actually works. And uh, also, it, uh, we're it, here in the Bay Area, we're constantly surrounded by people with new music ideas that can't get any funding because anything that involves music has a rights implication. And a lot of the investors here say, no, thanks. Uh, if it involves music rights, that's too much of an unknown variable for us to make a sensible investment. And we thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if we can solve those underlying rights concerns on the publishing side that to a point where songwriters are getting paid 100% of what they're owed uh, based, based on the usage and new ideas and new companies have a better chance of getting off the ground and getting funded. Um, well, really all over the world, but for the, the, the ones that operate in the U S specifically. And so we sold our distribution business uh, to CD baby and we invested every dollar into building an enterprise right solution um, that some have referred to as the big data for music rights. And it's really about connecting sound recordings to compositions at scale uh, through technological means. Our clients plug into API, uh, our, our API to submit requests and also see what is connected to what. It's very important that we show our work um, as we're doing all this stuff. And then we do all the royalty calculations and pay publishers um, every month. You do the so payments as well? Today. You do the payments as well? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. I saw something in a press release. I didn't quite get my arms around it about using machine learning as a linchpin of your technology. How does that work? Yeah, it's um, the way the machine. So we originally in building this, um, everything was manual in the early days. Right. But then as, as we're scaling up, that just is no longer an option. 
And what we're seeing is that every time we were processing a new request, our, our licensing team was basically able to learn more information that can not only uh, enforce the decisions made on, on previous requests, but inform future requests. And so what we've done is that we've built technology that basically um, emulates that thinking so that as there are more inputs flowing through the system, the machine is learning uh, how, how to strengthen and weaken certain relationships. So it's using, using that big data understanding and the previous connections and the relationships between various songwriters, between songwriters and publishers, between songwriters and artists, um, to, to basically always be getting more intelligence and making smarter connections. Does okay. that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I get it. How difficult is it to actually do clearances these days? I know that many publishers are making it easier, but there are some that are difficult. And I'm wondering, like, for instance, if you did, as you described before, your example of uh, an album of Beatles songs, how easy or difficult is that to clear? Well, it completely depends on the songs being cleared. I mean, some are, are very straightforward, um, and some publishing companies are very uh, fast or technologically savvy. Um, we have a lot of pre-clearance arrangements with publishers, so... Uh, when something maps to something in their catalog and something in their data feed, uh, then it's, you know, a license is, is granted immediately. And so the client experience is great because you basically get something cleared within a minute. Wow. Um, but, you know, it complete, with music, it completely depends what you're, what you're doing. Um, not everything can be cleared. Uh, so, you know, for example... If you're using a composition that has not had a commercial release in the United States, for example, uh, some music that might have been in a popular video game uh, out of Japan, might have had a commercial release in Japan, but there's no commercial release in the, the US, then that does require direct um, consent and permission from the publisher. And so if the publisher or the songwriters are willing to give it, then that's great. Um, but then it's, it's, it's being given under their time frame. Um, and, uh, if not, then you can't release it. Yeah. Is what you're doing mostly concerning the United States or are you looking globally? We're looking globally, but we're acting locally. We are understanding relationships across the different territories, uh, but in our experience, the territory that has the biggest problem right now is the U.S. And so our order of operations to really solidly solve this for the U.S. territory um, and with some of the largest revenue-generating platforms operating in the U.S., uh, to ultimately have the largest impact on on songwriters here in the U.S. and then to expand beyond. I find it interesting that you say that the biggest problem is in the U.S. Is that because of, 
basically antiquated copyright law? It's a, it's a combination of things, uh, in, in my opinion. Um, part of it is that the design of the copyright law doesn't reflect how music is being released today. Um, another problem is that there are certain benefits in place that, you know, such as market share disbursements that actually disincentivize um, open data sharing. And so without having a really clear understanding at an industry level of who owns what and a licensing process that reflects how music is created, released, and distributed today, there's going to be conflict. Um, and that's, that's essentially, you know, what, what we're seeing right now. Uh, Spotify is, is a great example um, where they are, some, some view Spotify as saving the industry and in that it's creating all this engagement, all these people subscribing to music, but also Spotify is losing a lot of money um, every month and every year. And the, their big opportunity to really make money is in going public. Um, but because of some of these copyright issues, um, that is currently getting in the way. Um, so... I think there's a real opportunity to to fix <laughs> fix things. I think there's a it's a good time to invest in fixing infrastructure in the industry because it's so it's so needed. Um, but I also I also believe it's now gone to a, a point where it, it can't be ignored anymore, and that um, that these core issues are going to be a, addressed pretty head on um, over the next couple of years. What's the biggest problem or the thing that needs fixing the most? Of all of this? Yeah, I know there's multiple um, issues here that we're talking about, but in your mind, what do you think is the most important? I think it, I think if we, if we did have a central agreed upon registry, um, that clearly showed who owns what and what percentage uh, they own, uh, a lot of the other problems would go away. So I think if, the, if there could be one, one thing, one thing as an industry that we get first to tackle these problems, it, it would be that, that central registry. Uh, there's a lot of talk around some of the, the blockchain uh, technologies helping make the transaction process more efficient, um, which I think is really great. But I, I think that's the second part of the problem. I think before you install glass walls on the house, you need to clean up the house. And as an industry, a central database or a central repository with support and buy-in from all the major players uh, would would get us to a clean house. Yes, but uh, ASCAP and BMI just announced a version of that anyway, and there was a lot of pushback, surprisingly enough. What's your take on that? 
I think it's interesting that they they are doing it without CSAC and GMR. Because yeah. if the goal is to basically say, as a country, we are working together to strengthen the ecosystem, then you get all the, all the major performing rights organizations together and say, all right, let's, let's compare notes, let's have a clean database, and let's present a unified front and recognize that we, we compete in certain elements, but we are aligned on this. And that wasn't the announcement. The announcement was that, well, two of us are going to do it. Yeah. Um, and um, so I actually think that while it, it is going to clean up things that are currently different between ASCAP and BMI, um, it doesn't seem like the intention is for a, a definitive database of rights or rights information in the U.S. Um, it seems it seems actually a bit more protective against the interests of ASCAP and BMI to me. Yeah, I can see how you feel that way. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, w- w- what do you think about that announcement? Uh, you know, I guess I feel somewhat the same way. It felt very incomplete. It felt rushed. I almost get the feeling and I have nothing to base this on. It's just from what I read and a few people that I talk to, I get the feeling that the whole idea was to get every organization involved. And when they couldn't get everybody involved at a certain time period, they decided to go ahead just to announce it and see if they could pull in CSAC and GMR later. Again, I can't substantiate any of that, but that's sort of what I feel. So uh, a step in the right direction, maybe. But uh, I'm sort of surprised, though. There was a lot of pushback from a lot of different places rather than being celebrated. Like, Well, I think ASCAP and BMI certainly thought that it was going to be celebrated more than it was. Yeah. I, it's a tough industry. <laughs> Sometimes you try to, do, try to do the right thing and you get more criticism than praise, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, okay. You know, that brings me to a question then, Chris. Publishing and music licensing is deep. It is a really difficult subject. How did you learn the ins and outs of it? That's a great question. I mean, in the early days, uh, we, we read a lot of books and we worked with a lot of lawyers and we worked closely with a handful of publishers um, to really understand the needs of different participants in the, the industry. We put together an advisory board that was made up of professionals from the different areas. Uh, For example, one of our advisors uh, is the former general counsel of Rhapsody. Hmm. Um, Another one of our advisors is the president of downtown music publishing. Um, And another advisor is the, um, the general counsel of, or the former general counsel of rights flow and, uh, Source three, so now he's now he's at Facebook, um, and so having having those opinions at the table as we're building out a business, were I uh, well, no, not where are um, so valuable because we're we're constantly you know we have the technology mindset of well how can we make this more efficient you know, how how can we make this have such a, a large impact and make everything easier. And then we're able to 
bounce our product ideas off of an advisory board that says, well, this is actually, this, this is how publishers try to look at this. Um, and this is, this is how services look at this. Um, and then we're constantly eliciting feedback from the publishers we work with and the, the services we work with. You know, what I find interesting is even publishers that have been in the business for a long time are kind of befuddled by the way streaming works and, and the way their income streams are from it. As a matter of fact, last year, I mean, everybody's a little more hip to it now, but last year, I remember talking to two small publishers, but people have been in the business and been successful for a long time, 20 plus years, and they had no idea about streaming mechanicals. They just didn't know. And I'm thinking, well, how is this possible? You know, are you guys still in business? But, you know, it's the case where even publishers with lots of experience are a little befuddled by all this. Well, I mean, have you seen the formula? Yes. The formula to calculate a streaming mechanical? Yes. I mean, you almost, you can't, you can't blame them, <laughs> right? I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I always want somebody to go through the formula, explain why every step exists, right? Yeah. Like, how did we get from 9.1 cents statutory rate on a download that's under five minutes in length, right, to the interactive streaming formula, which is just nuts, right? Yeah, and there's so many variables to it on top of it. So, you know, just because you maybe you know one area doesn't necessarily mean you know the other 19. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting time to be in the business, but you seem to have a pretty good handle on it, and, and louder seems to have a, a pretty good handle on it in a way that perhaps the traditional infrastructure doesn't. And I think it's probably because you're, you're approaching it from a more contemporary standpoint and knowing that actually having started as a label, you kind of know the problems, especially on the, you know, cover songs and then seeing what would happen from the uh, streaming service side as well. Yeah. I mean, one, one problem that we faced a lot in the early days, which is um, still a big problem for the services today is around new releases that, um, a lot of services are basically faced with this dilemma where they receive recordings from the labels. They are responsible for securing the publishing rights, um, whether directly or through a third party, before the street date. Um, and sometimes the information is there to do that. The information, the time is there, but many times it isn't. So then the services have to decide, well, do I, do I delay this, um, potentially piss off the label uh, or the artist, and, um, and some of my competitors might not delay it, and so they'll point the, um, the marketing attention to go listen to it on a, a competing service uh, until all the rights are secured, or do I move forward with it anyway yeah. and just hope that the rights will get secured? And so um, we've, been, we've been very focused on that problem lately because we feel like um, we want to remove that question from even being asked. We want to uh, provide the mechanism so that everything can be uh, secured before street date, that services no longer have to choose. Do you have a hard time getting metadata? Uh, depends from who. <laughs> yeah. Some of it, yeah. Some of it, uh, no. The reason why is that seems to be at most labels, 
supplying metadata seems to go to the lowest person last hired on the totem pole, which sometimes they're not exactly <laughs> sure, you know, what to include. Yeah. And especially in some really difficult publishing situations where you have 10 publishers and, you know, 12 artists, then that could be kind of crazy. So I'm just wondering, if, you know, how difficult a problem that is for you. Um, it is a problem because it is so inconsistent. So, for example, we work with a couple thousand publishers and we receive data feeds and the, the format that most of the, the larger or more established publishers use to deliver data is the Common Works Registration Format, um, also known as CWR. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a terrible format. And it's something that we would prefer not to use, but since it's, it's the adopted one, um, you use it. <laughs> yeah. uh, however, even with publishers using the CWR format, each publisher uses it slightly differently. So we've built a pretty extensive normalization process that takes all these different CWR feeds and um, cleans up the data so that it can very effectively and efficiently um, match or link um, to sound recording requests because the efficiency in which the link is made is going to play into how much we spend on cloud processing fees um, every time we run stuff against the database. Mm, yeah. uh, so it's um, the, the solution that's been talked about for that is, is moving publishers to, to DDEX. Um, but I think, I think we're a while away from that being an adopted format in the publishing community. Switching subjects just a little bit, Louder is basically a middleman on both sides between the artist and publisher, and then on the other side between the streaming service and the publisher. Uh, I shouldn't say the artist, songwriter. How does Louder make money? We get paid by the services to secure licenses um, or calculate and process publisher payments. Uh, We don't receive any commission on the publishing side. So we are, we are different from Harry Fox in that sense. hundred percent of the royalties go through to publishers. Oh, that's very cool. So it's just a flat fee then. It, it depends on the level of service, but it's typically a per request fee where we only charge when a license is put in place. So for example, obscure requests that are a dead end, um, or where a license cannot be put in place. We typically do not charge for that. Okay. Here's a good question for you. So getting away from enterprise for a little bit and going back to indie songwriters and artists, what should they know about licensing that they don't? Put it another way, what's the most important thing that they should know about licensing? I think it's, it's really important to have a clear understanding of what rights you have and what rights you don't. So... Um, when you write a song, what rights, what rights you, um, you're able to license out, how to license those rights out. If somebody wants to record a version of that song, what, what you're entitled to um, as a songwriter, and also the ways to register and um, collect money from those songs. That's on the songwriting side. And then on the recording side, understanding the, the rights you have 
with the master. Um, how those can be um, how those can be licensed out. What happens if somebody wants to use it in a video? How that process works. Um, if there are any bits of the recording that you did not create, you want to use any samples. As a clear sense of uh, how to go about to get those those sample licenses, but also understanding that when there are other rights holders involved in a piece of uh, a piece of art that you're creating, that they're often involved in any future licensing um, process. Uh, so I, I think those those are the core things. Um, there are some some really good articles around this stuff um, on the independent side. I think the, uh, the DIY musician blog. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, has some really great resources in explaining how these things work. I think for independent songwriters um, who are not affiliated with a publisher already, um, some, some great platforms to check out are song trust. Um, for, for the collection um, of royalties, especially all over the world. Um, and, uh, and one that's, that's brand new, um, I haven't used it yet, but the, the value proposition seems, uh, is very compelling, is a tune registry, which helps you register um, new compositions across the various databases um, and middlemen, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you can you can get uh, all the money you're owed. Well, there's nothing wrong with being a middleman when you provide a service that's equitable with the amount of money being paid. You know, I have no problem with people being middlemen. The reason why I'm saying that is I <laughs> I think maybe I depicted Louder as a middleman in a negative sense, and I didn't mean to do that if I did. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no harm in that term. As as we're building this stuff out, since um, since we're we're mainly engineers, um, we really look at a lot of what we're doing as building technology solutions for the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though there is a a fair amount of service element to it today, um, our dream is that these technologies can ultimately reduce uh, overhead costs across. Um, across the industry. I mean, if you look at the the performing rights organizations right now, most of them have a floor of people that are are manually doing uh, matching between Hmm. sound recordings and compositions. And um, that worked 10 years ago, (laughs) but it's not going to work 10 years from now, Um, especially as music creation becomes more accessible and distribution becomes uh, more affordable and um, and more extensive. So there is there is a point where everybody doing uh, matching or linking needs to adopt a technological solution. And instead of everybody having to build their own, we would love uh, we would love many people to build off the work that we're already doing. Yeah, yeah, I could see why. Definitely. Last question, Chris. What is the best piece of business advice that you received from somebody or maybe you learned along the way? Was there an aha moment where you went, okay, I kind of get this. Oh man. I'd like to think there's an aha moment every week 
about just around different things. Or there's, there's moments where I look back thinking, how could I have thought this <laughs> two years ago um, or five years ago? For louder, one of the most helpful things for us as we've built tons of things and, and navigated a bunch of opportunities and also, you know, fair share of problems over the way uh, or over the years. Uh, having uh, one, one of our early investors suggested that we put together an advisory board of professionals that we can go to to get a, you know, a second opinion on, on tackling something. Um, because I think, you know, a lot of times you don't, you don't need to completely reinvent the wheel. You need to build off what's working. Mm-hmm. And that piece of advice to create the advisory board and to um, evolve it over the years as, as, we've, uh, as we've grown has resulted in so many great things to the company <laughs> that I want to say that that suggestion, the value of that suggestion is probably the highest of, of any suggestion I've, I've received over, over the years of doing this. But basically, surround yourself with smart people, right? Yeah, yeah, right. I ask this question of everybody. You're number 174, and you're the first person that ever mentioned that particular aspect. But it makes so much sense when you have people around you that are so much, that are, I shouldn't say so much, but are, are more experienced than you are. Uh, it really does help. And I know that I've built my many careers off that by being around people that are a lot smarter than I am, that's for sure. I commend you for that. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I always hope to, to be the, the dumbest person in the room because there's just, there's so much, there's so much to learn from other people. And also, you know, every time we, we hire somebody, we, we really try to find some all-star who is able to do this specific thing so much better than everyone else mm, yeah. so that the bar is continually raised at the company. Which, you know, sometimes it sometimes makes the, uh, the earlier employees a little bit nervous. <laughs> I think it's a good type of nervous, you know, as the, uh, everyone steps it up a gear, but, yeah, uh, yeah. but it keeps, it keeps us working hard and keeps us working smarter too. To find out more about louder, go to louder.fm. Louder is spelled L O U D R L O U D R. There's no E in there. Louder.fm. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or find an iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.